Hi, welcome to the ESI What's Next podcast. I'm your host, Alex Feldman, and I'm taking you on a journey to learn about the exciting student entrepreneurs coming out of the ESI program. In the final part of our mini-series, Are Robots Going to Take Our Farms Too? We're sitting down with Leon David, CEO of Frontier RNG, to learn about his story and reflect on the first three parts of the series, as climate change threatens the amount of land that we can use for agriculture, we will need to find ways to change arid landscapes. Looking at places that are already arid, we might be able to find inspirations for the issue. Maybe robots will be the solution. Hi, Leon. Thank you for joining us today. And before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. First of all, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, about me, so I'm Leon David, as you said, uh, I'm leading uh, Frontier, which is an innovation hub, uh, an agroclimate innovation hub in Israel, located at the heart of the Negev Desert. Israel is, uh, for people who don't know, is over 50, almost 60% desert. And uh, the southern part of Israel is all desert. Uh, we have an R&D center that's been uh, working and experimenting on arid lands, agriculture, for the past 60 years. It's called Ramat Negev, the Negev Heights. Um, and we are actually the arm um, of innovation and commercialization of this research center. Um, me, myself, for the last four years, I've been the head of the business an innovation center of the whole regional council, uh, the regional council called Ramat Negev. Uh, before that, I had, uh, we called it a startup hatchery. It's a settlement, it's a kibbutz. Do you know what a kibbutz is? Yeah, yeah, but uh, I think some people who are, I, I personally do, but I think some people who are listening probably don't. So could you let, let so, us know a little bit? Basically, 10 years ago, I moved to a kibbutz, which is a shared community um, that uh, we live uh, in one uh, settlement and we all pitch in. We even, some of us work within the, the community, some of us outside. Whatever we, uh, our salaries go to the communities and we share the the share the wealth, you can say it. We have our own uh, factories and uh, agricultural fields. Uh, we do not own our house or our cars. It's all the shared community. So this is a place that I moved to 10 years ago and uh, we still need to, you know, make money and advance with the time. So we created a startup hatchery and we started investing in, uh, in high tech, which is more of my field. And uh, and now it has advanced. We've been uh, constantly investing in startups in Israel, mainly uh, a few millions a year. And uh, and then uh, I moved to you know to create. A, I look to create a bigger impact, not only in my small community. We have another uh, sixteen communities and in our area. So we've created the the business and innovation center that helps everybody in all of 
all over the region. And in the past year and a half, we've decided to even focus a bit more in agri-tech, uh, where we see that we have a lot of things to contribute to the whole world. Everybody now uh, really feels the... Uh, hold on. Everybody now feels the... the the impact of uh, climate change in a lot of places it's uh, with too much rain in many places it's desertification and in the places of desertification and arid lands this is something that we can bring a lot of value and we want to be a major player all around the world to bring on food security yeah can i i have a question like backing up a little bit uh, a question that i have Maybe I'll ask you two questions, maybe backing up around sort of the, this kibbutz structure. It's, great. it's your podcast. So. No, no, no. It's what, but, but two questions I have. One is, let's say, to the best of my understanding, let's say the kibbutz living structure is something that's relatively unique to Israel. Why do you, why do you think that is? Like, why is this something that has kind of been created there? Or why is this something that kind of flourishes in Israel? Because let's say it's not something you see as much in other, other places around the world. Well, interestingly enough, uh, people don't know it, but over a billion people around the world are living in shared communities of some sort. Yeah, it's a very surprising number that I was also amazed uh, to hear. But uh, here it's called the kibbutz. In other places, you can call it uh, many other names. And a lot of it is due to actually business model and social uh, strength. The, the most important one, sadly, but this is our world today, is the business model. It's very hard to maintain a strong community without money. You need, a source, you need sources of income, and you, you need people that can create those and manage them, and a community uh, that wants to be a shared community um, has to has to abide to the rules of economics. So a lot of kibbutzim in Israel have been dispersed, have changed their way of life and their business model, have privatized. Uh, we are one of the few that have not, and it's mainly because of our uh, social, uh, economic strength. After that, there is the social... Uh, uh, we can say DNA or education. Uh, well, in a lot of places, you need you need a group of people that really, really met, matters to them. They care, and they, you know, take it upon themselves to all the time educate the community and and connect people on the social level. And it's very hard. It's very hard to do it, especially in these days where a lot of people, you know, would rather stay at home and binge on Netflix than go out and uh, sit with people in the dining hall. Uh, but uh, it's possible. It's possible. For me and my family, we believe it was one of the best decisions of our life. Before we moved to the kibbutz, we lived in Tel Aviv. I had uh, an advertising company. Work was very hectic 
I did great with money, but uh, the whole thing of living in the city and having the pressure and, you know, walking your ass, your tail off. And, uh, and we thought that it can be done better. It can be in a better place, uh, closer to nature, uh, having the kids being educated differently. And for us, for us ourselves, healthier environment. I, I wonder just, just a little bit about this, something that just occurred to me. I mean, as let's say, you, you touched on a little bit of this, but say as people's lives are becoming more and more digital, um, they're finding that it's actually isolating more and more people. Do you think because of, let's say, this trend, more people are actually going to try to kind of counteract that and sort of shift back towards living on places like kibbutz and, and, and being more communal living? Because, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I strongly believe human beings are, are social creatures by nature. We, we need other people. We're, we're used to being in kind of groups and tribes. And, and let's say if that needs not met, we're going to look for it somewhere. Um, and it seems like we're, we're losing that a little bit. So I, I wonder if there's going to be kind of, uh, let's say, a counter where, where more people are going to try to, to live in this way? So first of all, it's not a matter of opinion. For As a fact, this is what's happening. We saw it during the COVID pandemic. Uh, we are now all over the, uh, the periphery, the settlements, the kibbutzim, moshavim. Uh, hundreds of families are standing in line to we cannot meet the demand. The Israel is is not right now meeting the demand. Cannot build enough housing to meet the demand that the families want. Many people want to get out of the city and move to uh, rural areas. Um, we saw it on COVID, and we see it even more now. Um, and I, I agree with you, people are uh, social animals, but uh, when you live in the city, it's you replace it somehow with social groups that are related more to your workplace or to your job, and you stay, and the big companies, uh, you know, they know it, and they try to we can debate if it's good or wrong, but they try to uh, facilitate this to bring you, you know, everything you need uh, to have it uh, within the building. If, if it's a gym or a pool or a nice uh, living uh, room, then uh, um, and food is uh, and buffet. Uh, all you can eat buffet. Um, we see in Israel that people want to go out, people want to be closer to nature. And I see it now in Agritech, where I thought I would be working with farmers. And I found out every day that I'm working with high-tech people, people 30, 35 years old, that decided to move out of the city, still want to be, they've, you know, they came from high-tech, they're engineers, they're programmers, they, they've, you know, huge knowledge in all the fields of uh, of tech, of technology. And now they want to grow strawberries. Uh, so they take a challenge, they want to grow strawberries in the desert. And that's where Agritech 
you know, steps in and, and you know, like bridges the gap between agriculture and, and today's. Like the bridging the gap between agriculture and agri-tech, you might say. And, and we can see it. We can see it now that if like six, seven years ago, almost nobody wants to talk too much here about uh, investment in, agri, in agriculture. Right now, it has become suddenly very, I might say, even uh, sexy. Like, they want to be in agri-tech. There's robotics and there's uh, biochemistry and electro-optics and, you know, really complicated and amazing stuff, genetics. And it's exciting. It's, uh, it has become like a really exciting field. And the farmers themselves, that are younger now, they embrace technology. They want it. They, they are willing to experiment. So I feel like there's a new wind blowing. And from, from maybe mixing these two things together, let's say what were the, let's say drivers that made the kibbutz decide to kind of get into technology and innovation? Because at least to me, at least from, from, from my knowledge, it sounds like like your kibbutz would be one of the first to to do that. It, it sounds like a kind of a new, I don't know, modern <laughs> kibbutz living living thing of really getting into tech and innovation. What was it? Let's say, like you said, because it's kind of a new thing that people are excited about. Was it maybe no uh, it, as a way to solve a, your own problem? Uh, go ahead. For, for a community, for a community like a kibbutz, uh, diversifying and uh, the the economic channels. And, you know, all the kibbutzim have a lot of agriculture. They, they, this is what they grew around. And, uh, but doing agriculture versus investing in agriculture or investing in agri-tech or in tech as a whole, it's a long way between them. It's a, it's a big gap between them. So actually, when we started the startup hatchery and I came to the kibbutz leaders and we, I was like, OK, so obviously, because we are doing a lot of agriculture, let's uh, start with agri-tech. And they were like, no, 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 no. We have enough agriculture. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's diversify. We want to invest in apps. We want to invest in, uh, you know, uh, cyber. We want to invest in... Let's try anything but agriculture. We have enough agriculture. The idea of agri-tech was not exactly, uh, hasn't been taken so well. And, uh, and it was about, so it was about diversifying. Like we have enough agriculture. Let's try to have a little bit of, you know, money on, on mobile apps. Let's try to have a little bit of money on uh, social, on cyber, on fintech. And, as time grew and went along, they saw that the DNA of the of the you know the record um, draws them towards the path of agriculture of agri food, a little bit energy, solar fields. So and this is and basically now after we've invested in other things like already also you know, mobile apps and uh, uh, 
delivery, in logistics, uh, or software, and all kinds of stuff like that. At the end of the day, the most profitable and the most uh, essential ones that we are we have stayed invested in are food tech and energy, and now also agri tech. Uh, so things are coming together. A question, because I think I, besides doing this, I, I do do stuff on the investment side. And one of the things that I tend to see, let's say we're either first-time funds or first-time investors or, or first-time angels, I feel like they often make the mistake of, uh, let's say, not investing in what they know, um, which it's not, which it kind of sounds like like what you guys did is you kind of had an area of expertise, but decided, oh, we don't want to invest in that. But you kind of went back full full circle almost to, to getting back to where your core area expertise how, how did you guys though build up let's say on these other investment areas how did you guys build up um the necessary knowledge capacity skills uh to invest in areas where, where at least on the surface it sounds like you guys didn't really have the background um in in those spaces right so first of all uh it was for the community it was like an experiment so there was no pressure. Uh, it, it was uh, really uh, everybody understood that it's a period of learning and there's going to be a learning curve here. And we kind of go with the flow. Uh, back then, the, uh, also, you know, Israel is strong with tech, but the tech community uh, was. Uh, developed and we started uh, forming groups on Facebook of uh, innovation leaders, innovation hubs and started talking to each other and we had a lot of meetings uh, I was one of I was uh, one of those people that uh, that uh, was really really seeking all the time this knowledge and to learn from others and willing to share others with my mistakes um uh, which is one of the things that Israel is also very good at. Um uh, we learn in the army all the time to not put our mistakes, like not to keep them in as a secret, but all the time share them and you know try to uh, figure out what to do with them with everybody else. It's a, like a an army protocol thing and it's it's very acceptable here in Israel. So very, very early uh, in the beginning, we had uh, quite a big group around like 50, 60 people of innovation uh, hubs in all sorts of uh, areas. And we started working together. It's a small community. Israel is a small country. And we just did it. A lot of acceleration programs, boot camps, trial and error, and it took it took a long time. It took, I think, like two, maybe three years until we had a real good portfolio that, like, we could say these these are a few good companies. Now we have now a few good companies. The first ones were, and this is an investment that we did right. A lot of investment we didn't do them exactly right. Uh, but you know, you know, you learn as you go along. At the end of the day, I think 
the, also the kibbutz leaders needed to be uh, a design partner. They couldn't have me tell them, okay, let's do this and this is the way to do it. Or you are wrong. I was like, let's go with the flow and have them be a part of the journey. And as the journey developed, they, they saw that they get in in certain points where they really, really have value. And then uh, as it goes, as it uh, developed, um, I, think, I think we attracted companies that we have better value for them also. Uh, can I ask, I, I noticed <clears throat> something you mentioned, and I think it's, I just want to elaborate on that point a little bit. Um, I think, you know, Israel is kind of known as the, the startup nation. And I think one of the things that influences that is is kind of the, let's say, interaction between kind of the compulsive military service and the military and the, the tech ecosystem. Uh, what, the thing that you mentioned was, let's say, how people learn to be open with their, with their failures and to share them. Are there any other qualities or things that are kind of, let's say, coming out of this this military experience that, that most people in Israel have um, that also, let's say, helps drive the, the tech industry? Yeah, sure. I, I think we see it a lot and we talk about it a lot amongst ourselves. I think, uh, you know, the military service teaches you a lot of things. Also, we can debate what, what's good or what's bad in it. And there's a lot of... Uh, of you know bad things also but uh, the few things that are good uh, we we see that we take it into our lives as we go along if, even after the military service and one of those things are first of all as i mentioned before not be afraid of failure and to have the to have the courage to at least try something uh, we also, you know, uh, are being taught that I think we all, we all of us here in Israel, like feel life is short. Things can happen at all times, and you want to do something, you gotta do it really now. And you will see a lot of people in Israel are making decisions really, really fast, and. And it's different. I, I work a lot with people from the United States, from Europe, and Arab countries, uh, making a decision and actually doing something, getting, uh, make, taking action takes a longer process. I'm not saying that it's, it's better to do it the way Israelis do it because we make a lot of mistakes on the way because we don't plan all the way we, uh, we skip a lot of things in the process versus like uh, a lot of American companies that we work with they plan everything very meticulous, meticulously and then have less mistakes along the way but it takes sometimes two or three years and by the end of those two or three years the things that you've created uh, might not be of value or are not needed anymore. So Israelis, our approach is a bit different. We're like, let's just do it. We plan it uh, not as the best ability possible, but 
first of all, we plan and go and we do it. And and it's the Israel, this is the Israeli approach. And this drive, I think, uh, everybody here thinks that is one of the leading forces. Uh, it's not, it does, it's not fitting everybody. It doesn't fit this, this, uh, I'm not recommending it this. <laughs> it's not that I would recommend it to everybody because you really, it's a, it's a, it's a way that like, if you're going to make a mistake, this is the sure way to make as many mistakes as possible. <laughs> but if you're not afraid of making mistakes and uh, losing some money along the way and a lot of uh, sleep hours, so then I can recommend it because it's a lot of fun. <laughs> okay. Uh, sli slightly changing gears. Um, so I imagine with, with, with Israel and, and agriculture, I imagine Israel is not particularly self-sufficient in terms of, let's say, food security or, or, or let's say, meeting their, their food demand? Is that right in my understanding? Of course, of course not. Uh, 40 years ago, almost 70% of Israel were either farmers or somehow related to the farming industry. Today, excuse me, 40%. Uh, today, we are uh, less than 1% farmers in Israel. And farmland has also decreased uh, substantially. So Israel is highly dependent on import. And uh, we do provide a lot. There is a lot provided in Israel, within Israel. But uh, we are very, very dependent on import, which is a very bad thing. Bad thing uh, as to my point of view. Uh, sadly, our last uh, ministry, Minister of uh, Agriculture has increased import instead of investing in, uh, in uh, uh, the ability to, to create more, uh, to expand agricultural areas around Israel. That was his decision. We hope that it will change shortly. So, so with the, with that in mind, my, my my question is really, can you you touched on this a little bit earlier, but but I think to unpack it more fully, uh, what are sort of the biggest then challenges that ag, ag tech and, and agricultural tech is trying to solve? Um, I would say mostly kind of in the in the Israeli context, context. I'm assuming most of the tech is trying to solve problems locally, um, but then I would also assume that let's say most of those uh, solutions could then help solve similar problems. Um, all over the world. Yeah, well, you see, all over the world, land is decreasing, land degradation because of land degradation, because of uh, uh, expansion of uh, the cities, and you know, uh, creating real estate uh, or selling real estate uh, is much more profitable. And I can, you know, go on and on and on. Why is that happening? The bottom line is that you need to make more with less and on less in, in on a smaller area, in a smaller areas. Um, and this is this is what Agritech needs to do. It needs to uh, make sure that you can 
create better yield per hectare or per dunam. Uh, if you if now it costs you a dollar to uh, uh, to create a kilo of tomatoes, uh, you need to reduce this to 20 cents. It's first of all economics, okay? Once you can do that, uh, and to do that, you have you have to use technology. You have to uh, better use of water. You have to reduce uh, fertilizers. You have to uh, uh, create better varieties. Uh, you have to predict uh, diseases and uh, whatever comes. Uh, you have to predict uh, your yield to uh, to have the log the whole logistic chain uh, much more efficient and better. And these are basic things that once we do it here, we it it's a value everywhere around the world, everywhere. Here in Israel specifically, we also have a huge problem of manpower. Manpower, working hands here are extremely expensive. This is something that in other countries, you know, a lot of countries, it's not a problem. They have even they will not they will even reject robotics and uh, here you're looking for robotics all the time to replace people because it's so expensive. In other places, we offered uh, to implement some kind of a robotic and autonomous uh, system. They said, but what are all the other people gonna do? And they need work. So they rejected them. So this is a problem that we have here in Israel, and we can't uh, say that it's all over the world. But the other things that I can that I told you, the first thing that I told you, you can go in every country, every country, even the countries that we are, we thought until today that they have abundance of water. All of that they to uh, rebuild to get rethought of and uh, replant infrastructure, water infrastructures. Everything is changing. Climate is changing even more rapidly than the farmers are implementing new technologies. And you know, this race, this gap is only getting bigger all the time everywhere. I want to sort of maybe one last thing, but but uh, on this topic, we're sort of maybe closing out on the last piece. I'm I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are, and, and maybe this isn't the right thing to be talking about, but but coming in from a little bit more of a let's say futurist perspective, and you know there are a number of futurists who are are very much about uh, let's say making humanity multiplanetary, uh, getting people towards Mars, etc. And I think yeah. to do to do that right, we're going to have to most likely, um, or at least one way of doing this would be some form of let's say terraforming, you know, actually changing the the environment of the other planets. Do, do you see, you know, considering, let's say, if we're trying to do some of this agricultural stuff, let's say, in the desert, do, does that become, um, let's say, a blueprint for, let's say, doing something like this on Mars or, or you know, get, getting a little bit more sci-fi and out there? Do, does For the people who want to do that, you know, the, the Elon Musks of the world, does, does this go down that path? Does that become the, the you know, we test it in the, in the most, least hospitable places on, on the Earth to, to try to, you know, get get the least hospitable in the solar system uh for me you know i think it's fun to double in this and it's uh 
gets you to get you to be more creative and you know it's nice thinking having a vision 200 300 uh, years to the future and for me personally um, I, I'm less focused on that we do have a partner a company called Haifa Haifa group that is a uh, you know, in the lunch, I don't remember uh, how it, it was called, they sent uh, hummus to grow hummus in space. And they did it quite, they showed that they can do it uh, quite successfully. Uh, the plant grew nicely in a, like a enclosed environment within space. And, uh, there it's more of a problem of radiation and, uh, and stuff like that. Um, Sadly, I think that we have bigger problems right now. Before, before we can colonize Mars, I'm afraid that we might develop uh, wars around food in the next uh, in the next coming years, and we should focus on, you know, avoiding that. Um, we just see it. We we see it. We Everybody, you can look at the statistics. Each year, desertification is spreading. Each year, you have more heat waves, more storms, and they are intensifying. The effects of climate on agriculture and the effects of agriculture on climate also um, has to be dealt with right here, right now. We can fantasize about having hummus on the moon, but but on in the meanwhile we we need to feed we find solution to feed eight billion people right now, and so I think I think the problem is more of a right here right now problem. I do think that we need to increase uh, investments in food. Uh, food tech, and we would have to grow a lot of things uh, indoors. You know, fish would have to be grown in rust facilities. Uh, a lot of our protein and a lot of our basic uh, food needs are going to come from, I don't know what to say, but uh, let's say designed algae or whatever, uh, uh, things that would be grown uh, milk and uh, meat and all those proteins they will be grown in labs and it's okay it's okay as a as an additive for a lot of people as a as an additive for a lot of other people it might be the basic meal that uh, they that what what we'll get but at least we'll survive and i think this is much more important than now thinking of how to grow uh, soybeans on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, all right, so just changing up a little bit for this last section, uh, you had a chance to listen to sort of the first three parts of, of this series. Um, I guess the two at least opening questions and we'll kind of go from there. I, I'm curious, one, you know, what did you sort of think of of the solution that was being proposed in the startup? And I think guess the two is, is, is that something that you think would be interesting to bring into the Israeli context um, or not? Is it kind of appropriate for Israel not? Um, and let, let's start there. And, yeah. Is it appropriate for Israel to what? 
No, no, to, to, so the, I don't know if you remember, but the, on the first three, we listened to kind of a, a robotics solution for, for ag tech. So I was curious if, if you yeah. think that that would be appropriate to bring into Israel, if it's appropriate for the Israeli market, if, if, if Israel's or yeah. within the Israeli context, sure. if that, that's a need. Uh, so I, this is a, it's a thing that I've touched before. I said it before, uh, robotics and as a whole, the whole uh, robotics and autonomous becoming more uh, and more critical for Israel. Uh, this is something that is, uh, you know, a lot of us are working on it and it's a huge problem. It's just a huge problem. I believe it's a big problem in many other places around the world. As I said before, in a lot of places, it's not. So it can become a second uh, or even third or fourth uh, priority. But in Israel, definitely it's one of the in, it's a high priority. Uh, we also, we have a lot of value to give there um since we are leading in um in as you mentioned before we have the army so uh, security and also in medical infrastructure and uh, mechanics uh, israel is has become uh, in the last uh, decade the leader a uh, tech leader there are a lot of tech transfer um opportunities right now from those sectors to bring into food tech and agriculture and agri-tech. Uh, this is something that is very, it's very important for us. And I think it will be of a great value for all over the world. Gotcha. And I'm guessing that part of the reason from maybe just echoing something you said and, and kind of rephrasing it, it sounds like to me where automation has the most value is essentially in let's say more developed and, and economies where the, the cost of labor is quite high because um, right. then because then the substitution makes sense. Um, whereas in, in economies where the cost of labor is not as high, uh, then, then it then it doesn't make as much sense because let's say the, the investment for the automation yeah. doesn't, it doesn't doesn't supplement the, uh, the cost of what current labor is. It even it even harms the country. You have, you have to look at the macro. Uh, at the end of the day, you want people to afford the food, right? You can't you can't have food costs go up. You need them to go down, uh, and you need people to have jobs, and you need them to uh, to provide for themselves. And in a lot of places, you know. Creating, creating, uh, uh, you know, for you it sounds like creating something good, but actually, on the other hand, uh, you're creating unemployment. So you, a lot of people are getting unemployed, and and they can't eat. So you haven't done a lot of good there. It's also like in agriculture, in a lot of places, you grow. You grow food, but you use so much fertilizer, uh, or uh, you're creating so much land degradation because of uh, mistreating mistreatment. Uh, so you're actually ruining the planet and 
and ruining the ability to create more good in the future. So you, you're doing something that is good on one hand, but at the same time destroying. So it's something that you need to take into account. And not all solution, not all solutions are good solutions for everybody. And we now work with various countries around the world. And each country has the, the resources and their economy and their needs and their wants and their social life. And you have to take that uh, into account and, uh, and provide uh, a, a food security by creating a real healthy agricultural ecosystem. Uh, you cannot just you know, drop a solution on, on somewhere and hope that uh, this will save the area. It will not. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ESI What's Next podcast. ESI is a program aimed at fostering socially responsible, environmentally sustainable student innovation through education and new venture creation. We're grateful to the European Regional Development Fund, Printify, SCB Bank, and Remy for their support. Tune in next week to find out what's next in the world of student entrepreneurship.